When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. So a sermon on gluttony. How many, how many of you have heard that? It's, uh, there's a reason that you haven't, because it really feels awkward to give it, I think would be the first reason. Um, we're in this series, if you're new here, we're in a series looking through the seven deadly sins. We're trying to understand how sins lead us to a life that is very unsatisfying. And, and these, these sins are deadly uh, by nature because they seek to crush uh, a relationship that we have with God, with each other, and, and with ourselves. Now this one is, is um, gluttony, and it's, it's often misunderstood um, for a number of reasons. One is that we think it less serious. And so uh, we kind of treat it like overeating at Thanksgiving, or we try to, it's a Super Bowl bash, and it's not really a big deal. So we kind of look at kind of look to the side. Another reason that I think we misunderstand gluttony is it's the one sin that we think we can identify in other people, that, that we think we can look around and we can determine who struggles with this sin. And let me say to you, that would be very superficial and it would be very unreliable because many people who struggle with food are some of the thinnest people there are. So this is not just an awkward sermon, it's often a very painful word to give, because many of us struggle with food. And I want to be very sympathetic to understanding that for some, food is on your mind 24-7, concerned with it, concerned of not eating enough, eating too much. And so I want to try to follow the same paradigm. And you see kind of the words in the writer of Proverbs when he says that, you know, put a knife to your throat. It's, it's this serious to be cautious, to be concerned, to be aware, not to be overwhelmed, but to be aware of its disastrous end, if, if unconsidered. So we're going to follow the same pattern. We're going to kind of look at what is gluttony. We'll define it. What's its essence? And then we'll look at what does it look like in your life? How does it manifest itself so that we can identify it? And then how can we kill it? How can we get it in a corner? How can we engage the battle? There is a battle to be engaged in. You know, the, I keep repeating that same verse, that same line from John Owen, that if you're not killing sin, it is killing you. And so we want to be mindful of this. So, so what is this sin of gluttony? Well, I think probably the simplest and the quickest definition that you would have is just overeating, overconsumption. It's this overindulgence of food. That's generally where our mind usually goes, and that has truth to it, no doubt. Uh, but if we were to limit gluttony to just having too much pizza, uh, then I think we would be missing the heart of the sin. And the heart of the sin is a, is a disordered love for food. Uh, one theologian said it's an immoderate uh, appetite for food or drink. It's a disordered love for food. When I mean disordered, I've been using that word repeatedly. Disordered means that 
I don't have it in right order. I, I love food much more than the value of the food. The value, we're going we're gonna to see that food has value. Uh, but I love it so much that I'm disordered in my love for it. And, and, and this disordered is that I'm looking to get out of food what I can only get out of God. That, that there's this, you know, one author said it's kind of food worship. Because I'm turning to food uh, to give to me that which only God can give. I'm pursuing bodily appetites as in, um, in the expense of spiritual realities. So let me try to give you this definition from one author. He says, gluttony is the sin of looking to food to satisfy the cravings of our souls for security, a sense of well-being, comfort, and control over our lives. That this gluttony is like taking food and making it a, a substitute God or a counterfeit God. That's what it's becoming. You know what I mean, I think. That, you know, when you're tired from work and you get home, you get a glass of wine or maybe two glasses of wine. And it, it calms you down. It kind of slows you down. You, you feel more at peace. It's giving you a sense of security, a sense of comfort. Or maybe you have a fight uh, with your boyfriend, or you lost a contract at, at work. And so, you know, you just, you're so angry, and you just, you eat a pint of ice cream, and you just, you get comfort from that, and you just, it makes you feel good, and everything else is bad. Or it can be any, it can be you're just angry, and life isn't going right for you, so you go through the drive-through line at McDonald's, and you get two Big Macs. You just, you want to soothe the pain with food. This is kind of, making an idol out of food. It's, it's, we're going to food to do what only God could do. Now, this isn't a temptation new to us. We see this even in the beginning of the Bible, in, in the Garden of Eden, in chapter 3 of Genesis. You know, the, the whole, the fall into sin was revolved around an appetite for food, right? In Genesis 3, 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. In other words, we see here in the temptation that food embodies this desire, this appetite, this longing for beauty and pleasure and wisdom. That's what idolatry is, right? Idolatry is looking at creation or some aspect of creation to do what only the creator can do. Frederick Buechner has uh, been quoting him a lot because he wrote a book called Wishful Thinking, and he gives these very, um, very interesting definitions from wor for words that we often don't think about. And he defines gluttony this way. He says, a glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. So, so we're turning to food. We're making a substitute God. So let me give you a picture to help you understand this. Think of Esau for a moment. You know, if you remember Isaac and Rebecca, uh, back in Genesis chapter five, uh, 25, uh, they have two sons. One is Jacob, one is Esau. Esau is born first. So he has rights of the firstborn. He has the promises of God uh, given to him. Now, you're led to believe as you read through this narrative that Esau really doesn't appreciate 
the beauty of the blessings of God. He treats them more casually. And so the scene in Genesis 25 is he comes into the home. He is more of a hunter, and Jacob, his brother, is more working among the animals in the tents. He comes in famished because he hasn't eaten. He is like hungry, voracious. And he comes in, and he says, uh, I need food now. And Jacob, who you'll see is a bit of a deceiver, he is a deceiver, he says, well, give me your birthright, give me all the blessings entitled to you, and I'll give you this porridge or lentil soup. And Esau goes for the deal. He goes for the deal because it's showing us, not only does he fail to appreciate the blessings of God, the promises of God that would pass through him, but his stomach is as God. His stomach is striving. You know the stomach, when you don't eat, it's yelling at you to pay attention to it. He pays attention to it. He submits to it. He succumbs. He puts off the spiritual blessings of what were his, and he pursues the, spirit, the satisfaction of the physical. You kind of see it, too, if you've read Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis with Edmund and the Turkish delights. He just keeps eating. In fact, uh, Lucy says, but he still wanted to taste the Turkish delights again more than he wanted anything else. Food had become for him a god. Now, let me be, let me be clear that food is not the enemy here. Uh, god has made food for us. Uh, god created a garden full of delicious food. And, and not only though food was wrapped around the first sin, God uses food to memorialize his greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament and the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. You see food strewn through the, the festivals of Israel. You see food play a significant role in the ministry of Jesus. He's always around a table. In fact, if you remember, Jesus is called a wine-bibber and a glutton because he's eating so much. That was a kind of a character assassination upon him. But, but he was enjoying food. He made food, right? The miracle of feeding the 5,000, the 4,000. And Jesus even memorializes his own death with food, the bread and the wine. In post-resurrection experience, when they're out in the boat, he calls them in. He has food prepared for them, fish for cooking. You even see food is the centerpiece of the new heavens and the new earth, when we will gather around the table together. In fact, you'd almost think the whole Bible's about food. It starts out with food in the fall because of food. You see food traced all the way, and it ends. So, so God creates the man and the woman to enjoy a meal with himself. And they fall into sin. This is the gospel. We fall into sin, and God makes a plan. He brings forth a son who's going to restore us. So what? We're invited back to the table again to enjoy a meal with God. And that's what heaven's pictured like. We shall. And what does it say in Luke 12? Jesus will gird himself with a towel and serve us at the meal. So food's a good thing. And food can be a funny thing as we talk about our love for food. It was, I guess, providential that when I was preparing the sermon, I get a call from Carol. And uh, she calls me up and I say, hey, hey, honey. And she goes, I want to know where you put them. And... Didn't know what to do with that, really. I didn't know if we're hitting those ages now where these things can happen. And, um, and I, she goes, I want to know where they are, and I want to know right now. And I said, uh, 
you know, if you give me a little clue as to where we're going, I'm happy to try to answer your question. She goes, I gave you the M&Ms last night. I told you to hide them because I don't want to eat them, and I want to know where they are right now. And I said, uh, I said, well, you told me I couldn't tell you when you would ask me. And uh, but it was funny. They, they were, what she did was she sent one of our grandchildren to us and said, go ask Papa where those M&Ms are. <laughs> she got the M&Ms. Um, so it, it, can, it can be funny, it really can, but, but for a lot of us here, um, what we think about food is really troubling. And do you have trouble with it? I mean, do you find uh, that food is something that you turn to for comfort or for peace? Or perhaps you hate food. Maybe you hate it because you think if I eat this, then it's going to add weight and then my body image is going to change and I'll hate myself. Do you, do you struggle with it in that measure? You know, because gluttony, we could define gluttony this way. Gluttony is simply having a dysfunctional relationship with food. How do you approach a piece of cake? Is it, is, does it scare you because of what it'll do to you? Do you jump on it like fresh game? You know, how, how do you, but, but how do you approach food? Because it's different for every person. And for some, it's a terror to put that temptation in front of them. And, and the way their belly goes is the way their life goes. So, so gluttony is having a dysfunctional relationship with food. Food was made for us. We need to be in a right relationship where it is serving us as, as a servant, not as a master. So, so let me move to the next section here. How does it manifest in our lives? How does food kind of appear, or excuse me, how does gluttony appear in our lives? And let me give you two extremes here, and we'll probably find ourselves on a continuum. Uh, but, but the first extreme, which would probably be the way you would answer, you know, what does gluttony look like in someone's life, you would probably say overeating, overconsumption. So let's think Golden Corral, endless Asian buffets. You know, that's what we think of gluttony, the overconsumption of food. Thomas Aquinas uh, puts a little more, he puts a more refined spin on it. He's a theologian of the 12th century. He said that gluttony is eating hastily, sumptuously, and greedily. And eating hastily is this idea of, of woofing it down, if you will. Eating fast, you're not even tasting the goodness of the food. You know, the second fork going in is hitting the load that was just dropped off before. There's no enjoyment of God's creation. There's no savoring of God's food for us. It's just packing it in. This is where sin can become dehumanizing because we begin to go up to the food, a plate on a beautiful piece of china, like an animal goes to a trough. Sin dehumanizes us. It, it brings us from bearing God's image to becoming like the creation. But the creation that doesn't bear his image. This, this, you know, we have speed dating, now we have speed eating. So hastily eating is seen as, as, as excessive. <clears throat> but also sumptuous eating. That is the expensive eating. That is, I like these restaurants, I like this food. I don't want to eat leftovers. I, I want ingredients from this market and this place. There's a certain excessiveness to we're only going to be eating these things. <clears throat> or a third way that Aquinas explains is eating in a way that is greedily. In other words, when you come up to a table of food, 
you, you do a quick analysis of the chicken on the plate and you think, what is the biggest piece? Or the nicest piece of pie? Or the choicest piece of meat? Or maybe you're, you're first in line and you look at all the people behind you and you think, <clears throat> I better load up uh, because I'm not going to be able to come back around, so I'm going to take that extra scoop or two just to make sure I... That's kind of greedily eating. Now, this is all excessive. It's all kind of you know, golden corral type of view. Now, I think that we can all, if we were honest, and the gospel allows us to be honest with ourselves, and I thank God for that. You know, in this nation, we struggle in this area. 38% of adults are overweight. 17% of children are overweight. You know, Benjamin Franklin said, we could probably eat half as much as we do and do fine. We overeat. $64 billion a year is spent on weight loss programs. That's greater than the GMP of Ireland. So you have overeating, and now we overspend to compensate our overeating. You can see just the death spiral that we will get into. The TV shows, Food Network, 24-7, things in front of you that cause you to salivate just looking at them. So that, that's, that's one manifestation of gluttony. The other manifestation is a little bit more deceptive. And this is where I want to kind of spend the time because I think this is what we miss. If, if one extreme is excessive eating, the other one will be particular eating. This is where gluttony is the desire to have food the way I want the food, in the quantity that I want it in the style that I want it, prepared with the ingredients that I want. It, it, it's my, think for this one, for this side of the equation, think whole foods. I, I need it range-free, I need it hormone-free, I need it sugar-free, I need it MSG-free, I need it ethically cared for, and I need it grass-fed. It, it, it's a particularizing of food to a point that it's just as gluttonous. In fact, some of the church leaders of the Middle Ages Define gluttony as costly food, a food that is delicacy, and ready for this one, and a longing for sauces and seasonings. Ouch. That, that, that can be as gluttonous. C.S. Lewis calls this the gluttony of delicacy. Many of you have read the book, The Screwtape Letters, and in this book, uh, Screwtape is a senior demon and he is writing to Wormwood, a junior demon. And he's kind of giving instructions on the art of temptation. It's a very interesting book. And in this one, in chapter 17, he's instructing Wormwood on how to work with the temptation of gluttony. And he says, we don't worry about gluttony of excess anymore. We pursue gluttony of delicacy. And so he gives a little bit of a line in here. And so here's a senior's demon, a senior demon's instruction to a junior demon he says this, now the senior demon is speaking about the human that they're trying to tempt. She is a positive terror to hostesses and servants. She's always turning from what has been offered her to say with a demure little sigh and smile, oh please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak but not too weak, and the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. And then he continues instruction, he says, you see, because she wants, because what she wants is smaller, and less costly than uh, what has been set before, she never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants. 
however troublesome it may be to others. At the very moment of indulging her appetite, she believes that she is practicing temperance. She would be astonished one day to learn that her whole life is enslaved to this kind of sensuality, which is concealed to her because the quantities are small. But what do quantities matter, provided we can use the human belly and palate to produce impatience, uncharitableness, and self-concern? So what he's saying here is that the anorexic can be as gluttonous as the one who's obese. Because obesity is simply the obsession for consuming more food. The anorexic is the obsession to control what they eat. It's two sides to the same coin. The measuring, the planning, the scheduling. It all can be the same idolatry, just on the opposite end of the spectrum. Jonathan Bowers wrote a great little piece on gluttony, and he says this, Obsessing over food can take the form of a particular diet, anxiously counting calories, disdaining certain foods as morally suspect. It's all a variation of the same theme. Food has become a god. Gluttony is food worship, either in excessive eating or pharisaical avoidance. And here's the irony. The irony is that these seven deadly sins actually started out as eight. And the one who originally compiled them was a hermit. He was a desert monk. You don't have Aristides and Krogers out in the desert. So he knew well enough that the sin of gluttony doesn't need food. It's the longing, the anticipation, the excitement, the pouring over. So you have gluttony being a dysfunctional relationship with food. It can be excessive eating. It can be excessive restrictions. You see it pop up in both scenes, the Golden Corral, the Whole Foods scene. The dangers are not theoretical. If we don't get a handle on this sin, it's not, it's not a theoretical threat to you. It's an existential threat. And let me give you a few dangers that come if we don't bring this into control. And that is the opposite, is temperance or self-control is the opposite of gluttony. But the first danger would be enslavement, enslavement to food. Uh, food can be, it, it's like a snake, a constricting snake that slowly winds itself around you and it begins to choke life out of you. Because what food does, particularly if we struggle with it, is we look at it for joy and it gives that momentary joy. But then the guilt and the shame follow it because I've overeaten again or I shouldn't have done this or I'm going to lose my body image or, or whatever the guilt for you. It comes on and then it sinks you into despair and discouragement. And then what happens is some time passes, you pull out of the darkness, and then you go ahead and you, you grab something and you succumb to the temptation again. And then what happens is you then the guilt and the shame come like backwash, and then following that is despair and discouragement again. And the cycle just keeps going around so that the glut never really enjoys the food, but rather is imprisoned by it. And food becomes now the enemy, the very gift of God, becomes the enemy of God. Whereas we've taken the gift of God and we've made it an idol, replacing God. And not only does it enslave us to great mental consternation, but it will eventually kill us. I mean, the consumption of food without care brings about crises of health. One million people die every year in food-related diseases. The food-related problems have increased 76% just between men 30 to 40. So there are repercussions from food. 
In fact, there's an old English proverb that says, gluttony kills more than the sword. In fact, in the last five years, there has been an increase by 20% of the purchase of oversized caskets. It kills you. So we want to be mindful of that, that, that food can be a threat to our own existence, but, but also it threatens the community in which we are. So, so for, um, it threatens, I'll give you an example, uh, in my own life, um, so Carol and I get married and everything's going great, she's a great cook, feeding the family, everything's going fine. And then we went overseas and I get introduced to some ethnic tastes and my heart was one. It, it literally, and I, I, and what happened to our, our eating was that Carol would be cooking, and I would go up and, so what do you got in there? And shouldn't we use a little extra, you know, maybe garlic, maybe throw a little extra oregano in? And I began over the years wanting to always make it taste at a ten, and, and one day she had the courage, and I'm thankful for this, and she, it, ashamed but thankful. She goes, I cannot cook for you anymore. She goes, you want to tweak and change. I, I, I'm unsatisfying to you as a cook. What I did was I undermined her confidence in all the work that she did because I was always fighting for the sauces and the seasonings. And, and, and what I did was I led to kind of a disunity in our own home at least a failure to appreciate the work that you did. I am a glutton. I love tastes. And, and I have been deeply convicted. So you know you have 45 minutes in here. I've got all week with these babies. And uh, this is only preceded by the next week, which I won't even go there yet. Uh, but, but, but there's a dividing that can take place, not just in our home, but in our church. You know, the problem in Corinthians, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he chided them, in terms of their eating habits, you know, about how they celebrate communion. The scene was this, that, that when the church got together to celebrate, they would celebrate the Lord's table. And uh, those in the church that were wealthy, that didn't have to work in the Lord's day, they would come early, and they would feast, and they would eat, and they would drink, and many of them would actually become drunk. And then the rest of the church, who didn't have the wealth that they had, and they had to work during the day, and during the Lord's day, they would come late. But by the time they came... There was no food left. So where they were feasting, these were struggling with being famished. And so Paul chides them for their lack of care over the nature of food. It can divide a church. In our church even today, and in evangelicalism as a whole, you know, we have this movement towards organic. We have this movement towards everything has to be from some pure source. And it is bringing division into our own church because you can't eat with anybody anymore unless it has certain requirements and certain places of purchase. I remember I was uh, eating peanut butter and, and someone who, who has helped me in terms of understanding certain nutritional issues, so it's got sugar in it. I said, okay, well, I mean, I, I grew up on Peter Pan and Jif, and, and I love them, frankly. And uh, so I said, well, we'll get peanut butter without sugar, you know. And so, well, this, this peanut butter had kind of a different type of sweetener to it, I guess. And, well, I can't use that one. And then I got another peanut butter, and I thought I was home free. It said peanuts and oil, right? You need both of those to get peanut butter. They said, yeah, but what kind of oil? I'm like, well, there you go. 
I said, I, I get, but, but, but what happens is, particularly if you have children, you can't eat together anymore. It ruins the fellowship, or it can, I should say, it can ruin the fellowship around a table because we're pounding our kids with hot dogs and they're only eating green smoothies. And how do you come together around a table that way? And I, I think that's where we need to both back up a little bit. And maybe the one pound of the hot dogs probably needs to think about some issues of health, but the ones that only eat green smoothies, you know what, a, little, a hot dog won't kill you. You know, there has to be some balance between the two. That's actually why we changed to gluten-free bread last month. We changed because there were a few, it's not many in number, but for those who are medically challenged by gluten causing, they're having to bring their own bread. And the table is a table of unity, of solidarity. And so it's worth it for us to bend with a small piece of bread to serve those that we might eat at one table. Now, that's what it is. It's a pursuit of unity. Let's not go around the corner and think that we're going to go to Oreos and Coke later. It's not that way. We're just trying to work together with food as opposed to being separated by it. Okay, the third danger isn't just to ourselves and to the unity of our church, but there is a danger uh, related to our witness before the world. You know, gluttony is kind of the unspoken sin in the church. Now, we're quick to point out homosexuality is a sin, adultery is a sin, drunkenness is a sin. But do you ever realize how silent we are in gluttony? I would be interested to know, and you don't have to raise your hands, but just rhetorically, how many sermons have you ever heard on gluttony? I could pin myself to the wall if I say, how many sermons have I preached on gluttony? And there won't be more than five. In fact, there was an article that came out. Everyone is a biblical literalist until you bring up gluttony. There's an inconsistency and a hypocrisy that we can often, by calling out sins, I'm not saying that we don't speak to the truth of these issues, but let's be, let's be balanced on all the different issues. And then the last danger I would say would be this that it dethrones God, it belittles God. Let's say it for what it is. We can, food can occupy enough space in our mind that it displaces God. This is what Paul was dealing with in the Philippian church in chapter 319. When he talks about these enemies of the cross, he says their gods are their bellies. In other words, what they think about and what they're concerned over. And, and, our, and our bellies can be like gods. You know, as I said, when, when you haven't eaten, it screams at you for attention. It wants your attention. Think about all the times that you think about it. And, and it, it just suddenly displaces God. One author said it this way. He says, gluttony presents the chief end of man as a table well-stocked and a stomach well-filled. Hunger becomes the great enemy. The refrigerator then stands as the temple where we find our deliverance. So, so this is the danger. It switches out our God for food. Now, so where do you sit on this? Do you tend to struggle with perhaps excess? And excess, as I said, can be excess in money. Do you consider how much you spend? Do you consider the health of the food that you do eat? That is a consideration. I mean, do you, do you exercise moderation? You know, do, you, do you often go without? You know, our wastage of food is one thing, but when you compare it to the reality that 35,000 people a day die in this world from malnutrition, 35,000 a day die from malnutrition. 
or are you other are you on the other end where where you're particularist you will only shop here you'll only eat this that your children will never be exposed to this that you don't even want them coming into contact with a hot dog is so particular you are to it that uh, you fear food i mean for you f- food might be a fear and, and you don't want to let any in fact it's called orthorexia nervosa it's an obsession with only having pure things many people are moving toward that so either one what you want to do in terms of determining how dysfunctional is my relationship with food how often does your stomach determine the joy of your day so we looked at what is gluttony it's that dysfunctional relationship with food it can be obsessive it can be over restrictive we see how it appears it's a golden corral it's a whole foods so what do we do with it how do we put a a fork in it so to speak uh the way we go after this food uh if if gluttony is a disordered worship then the answer would be an ordered worship a right worship and to this i would go right to the person of jesus christ who is the bread of life for us i would ask you to consider christ with me for a minute i'd ask you to consider in john chapter 6 when jesus christ saw the multitudes and they were hungry hunger is part of the human experience god has created us for hunger with hunger so that we would see our need for him hunger is a legitimate experience that we're supposed to face And Jesus sees that and he brings aid to us by feeding. And he must have thrown a party because there were basketfuls left over. And he feeds them and they're happy and they're full. But remember what the miracle is for. The miracle is to display Christ not as some Costco, but their display he, the miracle is displaying Christ as the son of man. who has come to deliver us and to be for us all things why did he give him bread what well, jesus is modeling what god did back in in um the old testament when he rained down manna god is showing god knows that the manna would only strengthen them for the day they would be hungry again but it's training us to see that in god we have all things so jesus now steps and he makes manna for the people so that we would look to him not as a bread maker but as the one the only one who can satisfy all of our longings and so they followed him which you can imagine right but jesus called them on it and he says this in john 6 he says truly i said to you you're seeking me not because you saw the signs they're not following him because the, because he's the messiah he's the bread of life for us he says but because you ate your fill of the loaves don't work for food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give to you for on him god the father has set a seal they said to him what must we do to be doing the works of god and jesus answered them this is the work of god that you believe in him whom he has sent so it's faith in christ which begins the crushing of the urges of the physical appetites it's faith in christ it's believing that he is the one this is the gospel that he is the one that has come and is all things to us so many of us look at food as a as a kind of a place of significance it makes us feel good it makes us feel comfortable well we're to run to christ for that we're to appeal to christ 
to satisfy our deepest longings. If you notice the last three of the deadly sins, there's lust, or excuse me, there's greed, there's gluttony, and there's lust. All of those are satisfied with bodily appetites. And to each one, Jesus says, I'm enough. I am what you need. You may have to do this a hundred times in a day when you're tempted to slake your longing or your sadness with food, you may appeal to him, Jesus, feed me, satisfy me. That's why the psalmist in 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We go to him, God, satisfy me with my knowledge of the Son. Or some of you turn to food for security. I I need to eat to live. I, I need to eat. This is what I need. But Christ can sustain us in that. In fact, in Isaiah 55, we, the song that we sang, the last song in the first set, Come Ye Sinners, there's that invitation, particularly if you're not a Christian here. He says this in Isaiah, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. In other words, it is in Christ alone that will satisfy our deepest needs. Do we need to eat? Yes, we do. But food isn't to satisfy us. Christ is to satisfy us. So so turn to Christ. In him we have all things. But secondly, I would say to put this sin to death, we need to strive for moderation. We need to consider the purpose of food. You've been made in God's image with a need for food. But food was always given to you to draw you back to God. Food is that reminder you cannot live alone. Food is the reminder you are not sufficient in yourself. You need God. And so food was always used to bring us back to God. And, and we get twisted sometimes where we think food is more to us than it should be. So Augustine, a church father in the fourth century, said Christian pilgrims get confused between using things and enjoying things. And here's what he says. He says, a pilgrim longs to return from a foreign land to his home country. That's true, right? Pilgrims long to get to the land. He says, food for the pilgrim is a means of getting there. But if we become so delighted in the pleasures of the journey, we tend to lose interest in our home country or citizenship in heaven. So he's just saying, be mindful of the way you use food. It's a tool for you. We eat to live. We don't live to eat. So we want to keep it in moderation. For you, it may be that you have to eat less. For some of you, you may work outside. You may be tired. You may need a lot of calories to sustain your body in the work. For me, I know enough that if I eat a lot of carbohydrates at lunch, I'm toast in the afternoon. If I want to have a sharp mind, I only eat rolled up lunch meat or vegetables or proteins because I want to be on point and I know that that's how my body works. So so look at food, not simply as a point of rejoicing, but look at it as a means to an end of getting to our homeland. Okay, thirdly, I would say to consider to fast, to periodically fast. In Matthew 4, we read that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he was tempted by Satan. At the end of the fast, of course, because Satan always looks for an opportunity when you're at your weakest. Can you imagine how hungry you'd be? And so he, in the fasting, he says, 
it goes to Jesus and says, why don't you turn these loaves, these stones into loaves of bread? Now, can't you imagine after 40 days, Jesus, with the authority, the power that he has to have a nice, fresh, baked loaf of bread? It would be incredible. But Jesus, though he was hungry, was satisfied in God alone. And so he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our Lord. He finds satisfaction. In the fasting, spiritual satisfactions come to the fore that when we don't push down the physical appetite, there is no room for the spiritual satisfaction to rise. So what fasting does for us is it reveals to us how attached we are to food, how much we need food. And, and fasting, you know, dieting is a modern invention to curb weight gain. Fasting is an ancient practice to slay the physical appetites that we might find spiritual satisfaction to increase. So consider fasting. Maybe skip lunch a day this week or next week and go to John 6 and read through it and appeal to God that he, by his spirit, would fill you with satisfaction and strength and joy. Just try that. And, and Hungering for God is a book written by John Piper. It's very helpful in terms of kind of walking through some of the practical and theological aspects of fasting. Okay, fourthly, to put to death the sin, I would say feast well. Feast well. God has made food for us as a means of our joy. So feast well. You see the feasts that Jesus enjoyed. You see the feasts that Jesus is going to give to us. Enjoy the food. Hey, food, I love colors and tastes and textures. Those are gifts of God that rightly used lead us from the bread of life, sorry, for the bread of earth to the bread of life. This food can actually be an inducement to our joy and worship of God. Think about it when you're a kid and your mother's making this batter to, to make a cake and then she gives you the spoon or she gives you the, the beater to, to lick and you love it. But you don't stop there. You're looking forward to the cake that's coming. That's what food is to do. Food is to remind us, this is really tastes really good. Thank you, God, for that. God, you're so good to me to give food to me. This is what, when Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all for the glory of God. I mean, have you ever had like a, a delicious, freshly squeezed glass of orange juice? It is really good. And it's good to the point of leading you to say, God, but you're better. If this is from your hand, how much better must he be? So let it be a point of worship and feast well. And then the last thing I would say, and I'm going to use these words to kind of lead us into communion, would be to participate rightly in this table. This table of bread and of the cup is a reminder to us. It reminds us of the bread that we need to live. We need bread to live, but we need more than bread. What we need is we need the bread of life. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 6, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So when you come to this table... Think, bread, I need to live, but I need more than the bread. Uh, this table is to remind you of your disordered loves that you have flirted with this week. Confess those loves. 
confess the false appetites that you've pursued. And then, and then look at the bread and recognize that this is just a reminder of the feast that we're going to have. It's a precursor. It's a foretaste. So we've looked at gluttony. It's a dysfunctional relationship. It appears between Golden Corral and, and Whole Foods, and you can find yourself somewhere in that continuum. And then we want to kill it. We want to kill it by thinking more of Christ. He is able to satisfy. And the satisfaction is heightened as our physical demands are lessened. And then think through how moderate are you with food. Do you fast? And do you feast well? So let's take a minute now and, uh, and just silently confess perhaps our disordered loves or thank him for Christ who feeds us with bread of which will satisfy forever. And then I'll pray for us and the elders and servers will come forward.